This podcast is sponsored by Harlan Clark. In the face of increased competition, customer engagement is table stakes for credit unions looking to survive and thrive now and into the future. Harlan Clark can help you create meaningful engagement, providing an outstanding experience at every touchpoint and turning it into a powerful competitive advantage. Learn more at harlanclark.com. From the Credit Union National Association, this is the CUNY News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. I'm Ron Jose, Senior Editor with Credit Union Magazine. On April 14th, 2018, the island of Kauai in Hawaii was deluged with a historic rainstorm. As with all natural disasters, basic daily needs such as food and clean water were suddenly at a premium. Kauai Government Employees Federal Credit Union, under the leadership of CEO Monica Bells, was among those at the forefront of recovery efforts on the island. As you will learn in this podcast, Monica Bells is uniquely suited for the task of emergency response. But Bells's leadership qualities extend beyond natural disasters. As a millennial CEO, she has a wide range of international business and community building experience, as well as a fearless spirit that make her the kind of young leader that can help credit unions shape their future in a global marketplace. Please join me as Monica Bells shares the Aloha spirit on the CUNA News Podcast. Let's set the stage for our listeners. Tell me about the floods that hit the island of Kauai on Saturday, April 14th, 2018. Sure. So last year's floods, um, basically what happened is unannounced, we had a couple huge thunderstorms approach the island and they landed on the North Shore primarily um, and they just sat there and dumped record rainfall, more rainfall than we've seen in our 500-year history books. Um, in a 24-hour period, and it caused about 12 landslides on our road systems, um, took out countless homes. We were very fortunate that nobody uh, died um, that night or the next day, um, but when everyone woke up the next morning, they, there were a lot of um, displaced people and an enormous amount of cutoff people from any kinds of resources due to the road landslides. Now, to the good fortune of your members and the re- the residents, you have a background in coordinating disaster responses. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So I started very young, about 11 years old, traveling internationally for um, like volunteer projects, humanitarian projects, due to my grandfather who worked in international development. So I started in Tonga at 11 and just kept traveling and doing volunteer projects for the remainder of my life. And I was also a firefighter, which, so I was trained in fire rescue during high school. So when I combine those two traveling for volunteer projects and being involved in fire rescue, um, I ended up getting um, a passion for disaster relief projects internationally. So I worked on quite a few projects. Um, one being the Japanese tsunami, um, in Japan after the big earthquake, the Philippines, a typhoon in the Philippines, um, the Nepal earthquake. So there are quite a few projects that I was helping to coordinate. Um, and then I'd worked on the field a few times on smaller um, disaster projects or just rebuilding communities. So it was something that I I did voluntarily um, throughout my life. And 
having woken up that next morning on Kauai after those floods, I knew in my heart before it was announced or, or anyone really knew what happened. I knew because I had friends up in there who were calling me and FaceTiming me the, the day before and I could see what uh, the water level rise um, and how quickly it was happening and that they were completely stuck in tree forts, um, that this was pretty much the epic proportion of flood and that we needed to um, take it very seriously and that rescues would need to be made. And I was very concerned that lives had been lost at that point. Um, but yeah, I just knew in my, in my gut the next morning that this was a real disaster, a big one, and we needed to respond as a community immediately and start rescuing people as soon as possible. Yeah, you really have an interesting background and uh, a lot of interesting experience, too. And we'll get back to a lot of that, too. But right now, as far as your credit union CE role was concerned, what was your first course of action during last April's flooding? So I woke up in the morning and we, as in my team, were always on text chats. And we started texting each other that um, there's been severe flooding. We have friends isolated on the North Shore. Um, as far as we know, some of them have notified us that they're okay, and there are lots who have not who we are out of touch with entirely. And the reports we were getting um, were not good, and so we convened as a team. We met at the headquarters immediately. I, I pulled in all my leaders early in the morning, and we sat around the table. And there were um, a couple of the leaders in the group were also experienced in uh, rescue of sorts because we are a government employees credit union, so. Some of the people we attract for, as employees are family members or former government employees. So one of our, our um, marketing leaders, her father was a fire chief on the mainland for um, her lifetime. And so she knew a lot about disaster relief as well. So we just we convened as a team and gathered as much information as we could, gathered as many trucks as we could, and made a plan to immediately hit the needs that we were hearing are our, our the most precedent up on the North Shore, uh, which at the time was water, fresh water, um, slippers, and gasoline because there there were many jet skis being deployed by local people in boats who were going out and rescuing people trapped. And there was not enough gasoline. The North Shore is already a, an isolated area. You add 12 landslides to the one road on this island on top of the North Shore being that isolated, and the, you have a massive resource restraint problem. So uh, we just were trying to quickly identify what are the immediate needs, fill our trucks up, because we were down in headquarters in Lahui, which was the main town, and drive an hour north to find out where we could, um, who we could hook up with, because these, these are all friends and family members, too, who are doing rescues up north, so it's just this constant communication channel, because we are a small island. So how do we get the most needed resources to the most um, nimble jet ski or boat as soon as possible to get to the right people. And that's what we started doing on day one. So those were your members' greatest needs, water, slippers, and gasoline. Yeah, I would say Im the immediate need was by far re rescues. So gasoline for the jet skis and the boats because um, people needed medical attention immediately and or they needed to be rescued from rooftops, um, trees, or wherever they were stuck. And the rains weren't stopping, so we were concerned that the flood would continue. It, w it was just a dire situation. So lives first, you know, it's kind of a triage lives, rescues, medical. Um, so the gasoline was needed for that. And, and um, next was water, um, power banks. Actually, that was an immediate need because of the communication, the importance of communication channels during a disaster. 
there was obviously no power. So cell phones needed to be charged in order for people to communicate where they are, if they're okay, what they need. So I went to Walmart that morning and I picked up every single power bank I could get my hands on. And I got that up in the first shipment to um, the isolated area so that people could charge their phones and keep in communication with emergency personnel and their family and whatnot. And texting was the way you kept in touch with your leadership team that you were able to do that kind of throughout the storm? Correct. We were all on a text chain. And then we also leveraged social media quite a bit in terms of communicating with other organizations and partners and leaders across the, the island who were working to do the same thing we were doing. So it was a coordinated effort with texting and social media for those who had power in their phones, of course. How did you deliver financial services? Sure. So that came a little bit later in the game. And when I say later, every minute, every hour seems like a day or two when you're in a disaster like that. Within, a, I, I want to say within two days, we started quickly hearing reports outside of just medical needs, rescue needs, the immediate emergency needs. We started hearing reports that houses were demolished and damaged. And due to our climate, tropical climate, they were covered in mold and or would be covered in mold because of all the water damage um, and water exposure. So families weren't able to move back into their homes and they weren't able to go to any temporary housing. So families were genuinely displaced and they were basically families were just crowding into homes that were left and everyone was sleeping in there and it was just very unhealthy conditions. So in order to quickly get people back in their homes, they needed to access financial resources to quickly clean up and build, uh, rebuild their homes or at least clean out the mold and bleach out the mold um, and do whatever minor repairs they could quickly do to get back safely into their home. And they knew they needed immediate access to finances and access to the supplies themselves. So by that time, two days into a disaster, there were some infrastructure improvements in terms of um, boating routes that were going to and fro the isolated areas. And uh, our county did an amazing job, and all of the workers in our across our island did an amazing job getting one of the bridges reopened as soon as possible to access the the people in the homes in there. So what we kept hearing is we need we need money, immediate money, and we can't wait for FEMA or you know some program to give that to us because we don't have a place to live. And then we also kept hearing fears on, I have to pay my bills. I don't have a job. I just lost everything. I, how am I supposed to pay my more, you know, what do I, you know, it was just this constant, like people couldn't even finish their sentences because they were so stressed out about all of the components, but especially the financial component, which is where we got together as a credit union. We brought the board of directors in immediately and said, what is our role as a credit union? What can we do here? What have other credit unions across the nation and the world done in disasters and immediately went to work and building a program that we launched that next day to give people immediate access to finances. And in doing that, we had to give them access to that service. So we had to, I put the credit union in a dry bag and I, which is just basically my hotspot and my and forms and um, my laptop, everything in the dry bag, and I jet skied and boated and swam and did whatever I could to get to the most remote region. The other part of our team set up a pop-up location um, in Hanalei at the community center where a lot of um, organizations were kind of settling to offer services to people. So we set up a branch there and we just pumped out tons and tons and tons of uh, disaster relief loans with deferred payments and low interest rates for the people. So you delivered services via jet ski. 
I did. And our team back home was processing this so fast and we were using mobile communication as much as possible, taking pictures of IDs or whatever forms we could. Um, and then I would jet ski back to the, the area that wasn't isolated as quick as I could after I, you know, gathered members because I needed to get home by dark and I needed to pick up my kids still. And then I would hand off a package to a teammate who would then drive halfway to the branch because, again, this is an hour, two hours away, the, the branch, who would hand it off to another teammate who would get it to the branch before someone went home who would process everything, print out an instant debit card, who would then do the same handoff all the way back so that in the morning I would have the debit cards and funded loans accounts to give to the people when I went back in the next morning. So it was a quite a teamwork effort to get people these loans and, and finances immediately. And the other thing is, is that this isn't something that just takes care of itself, you know, in three days or a week or 10 days. What, are, what were members' long-term needs like? Sure. We're still experiencing the aftermath because the road is actually still closed today, a year later, uh, over a year later. It's pretty devastating. And you know what? We just had another landslide from flooding a couple weeks ago, and it closed off another portion of the road. So they're pretty vast. Um, it's, it's sometimes overwhelming and, and, and disheartening, but it's just part of disaster recovery and short-term and long-term. And so we're, we're actually, this motivated us to open a branch on the North Shore because the North Shore didn't have a credit union to begin with. So we are in the process now of building a North Shore branch and helping in whatever way we can financially advise and support our members in the North Shore community to rebuild their lives. So you're still, they're still recovering from it. it. It's just kind of an ongoing process then. They are still recovering. I think they'll be recovering for quite a while. The businesses have been suffering quite a bit. Tourism has shifted a lot from the North Shore to the South and different islands, but we are encouraging tourists to keep coming to Kauai, keep coming to the North Shore. We are open for business, but the businesses have taken a pretty big hit, especially the small mom and pops. And um, a lot of people are still displaced out of a job or working part-time instead of full-time and having trouble um, with the long-term. And a lot of people have, to be honest, moved south or, or moved away, which is um, not helpful for the community. So we'll see how it, how it goes. I know that our leaders, our community leaders, the business leaders, Chamber of Commerce, our credit union, there's a lot of us gathering around still, meeting weekly, trying to figure out how to best support and rebuild and reinvigorate the North Shore community um, with the restraints that we have in place, which is the, the road closures and the landslides to this day. Have you received support from any third parties? We have not as a credit union, but the community has received a tremendous amount of support from private donors, from nonprofit organizations, um, from the government, etc. So there's a lot of, of funding that has poured into the community. I don't know if a lot of people still understand the impact a year later, that it's still great and that we're still in need of a lot of help up here uh, on the North Shore. So everyone is still encouraging more support and more help um, in the aftermath after a year. To shift directions a little bit here, can you tell me about your path to uh, Kauai Government Employees Federal Credit Union? Sure. It's, it's funny because I just was able to share this story on... Um, a women's leadership panel for the state of Hawaii. And I was the only millennial on the panel. And um, 
I, I got to share the panel or share to the audience my story. And my the question was, how do you end up working in a career that's your passion? And I just said by accident. And I told the story, and uh, everyone was laughing. But my passion always in life has been since I can remember international development, community development work, nonprofits, usually nonprofit side. And so I've always done that on a volunteer capacity. Every summer break I could get, I would go international and do a project um, and learn again from my grandfather. But I knew I also needed like a real job and a real education and all that as well. At least that was my assumption. So I was also in the business world because my stepfather was an international banker, which I never wanted to be a part of. And my um, mother was an entrepreneur. So I was exposed to that side of the world. And educated in it and encouraged to, you know, further my education. I got my bachelor's degree. Um, I, I did work as a firefighter during college and during high school, actually. So that was fun rescue work um, that kept my work ethic high and, and just my drive for helping people. So in the end, I decided to, you know, go off to college. I got my degree in communications. I did a year abroad in Russia where I worked in politics, um, um, helped observe the elections there for um, Putin's re-election, um, and just got really involved in global politics, global business, was very fascinated by it all, uh, especially as it was relating to my nonprofit drive and my international development side. It was like all kind of interconnecting, and I was learning that. But um, eventually, just, you know, to make money, I, I got a, an internship with a politician back in California, and then an internship in communications for a corporate multinational company. Then I started kind of entrepreneurship stuff. I was doing real estate development projects and to fund a lot of my international projects. So I would do a development project and then I would, you know, go spend three or four months during the break of those projects abroad working on something else internationally. So ultimately I landed in, I started a company during the recession and that started taking off. And at that point, I'd only had my bachelor's degree. So when that was taking off, I thought, I need to learn business because this is growing so fast and I don't want to blow it. I want to grow right. So I would like to go get my MBA at this point. So I did. I, I applied for a few programs and Thunderbird was the number one international business school since I could remember. And a lot of my mentors who I had met around the world had mentioned, hey, if you ever go into business and business school, Thunderbird's a great one. So I got accepted to Thunderbird and I, and I took off and I went for it. And that led me all over the world. Um, I was able to meet a lot of incredible business people um, in China and Asia and Latin America and all over the world. And they really helped me hone my company and understand controlled growth and understand how to not get, how to do effective business in Asia, because that was a tough one for me. I was, my company was working as kind of a middleman or liaison between multinational companies and uh, supply chains in China. So I was learning quickly that I, I needed to learn international business because it was very challenging. And so Thunderbird rocked. It was, it was a great experience. My company was flourishing. At the time, I was living in Hawaii and traveling to the mainland and to Asia. So Hawaii was a nice central location. Plus, I grew up in the, in coming to Hawaii, so it was, it was a no-brainer home for me. But I became pregnant with my third child and decided I was traveling way too much after I spent a month in Beijing and Western China, and then I had to spend several weeks on the mainland with my clients. I just realized, you know what, I just want to be on Kauai with my kids. I kind of needed to make a choice at that point. 
So I thought, I'll just hang out on Kauai. I'll give up my international career for a little while until I'm ready to come back to it. And I'll find a local job. So I was on Craigslist looking for a job, I think for my brother, for like a bartending or server job at the time. And I kept coming across this executive position for a credit union. And I didn't know what a credit union was. And I thought it was a hoax because it was Craigslist. But after it kept popping up, I thought, well, maybe I should apply for something like this. So I went to check it out and applied for it. I was, I felt I was easily qualified, if not overqualified for it. So I went in and I interviewed and the, the CEO, Mel Chiba, asked me in the interview, what is your passion? And I was super honest with him. And I said, you know, I got to be honest with you. It's not banking. In fact, my stepfather was a banker and that was the last thing I ever wanted to do. It's international development and community development. And he obviously not knowing at the time what a credit union was, he did of course, and he snagged me and he immediately sent, hired me and immediately sent me to the World Council of Credit Union Conference in Denver that year. And I just, I showed up, I saw the bearing of flags, I met leaders and I joined the Y Cup program. I met young leaders and leaders across the world who were transforming their communities. And I was blown away and I thought, how did I land in my calling through Craigslist? This is crazy. <laughs> but I was hooked for life from then on. So I worked as an executive at Gather Federal Credit Union for a few years, and then a CEO retired at Kauai Government, and they hired a, a global headhunter for that, and I was in the top three, and they ended up choosing me. Thank goodness. It's been such a blessing and such a learning experience, and I'm stoked to be leading the next generation of this movement and learning from all those who are still in it, because there's so much to learn and so much to do in our industry. You have a global MBA through Thunderbird. How does that differ from a traditional MBA and how has it shaped your career? Sure. So a global MBA's number one focus obviously is international business and cross-cultural business in other countries, other environments. So the fundamentals are still integrated in the MBA program, you know, your basic finance, marketing operations and whatnot, uh, management. But the primary exposure is looking at all of those fundamentals in a global perspective and then getting into sub-regions of the globe and understanding how they're interconnected and or how they work in these little pockets. So the global MBA was a lot more fascinating for me. One, because the requirement of Thunderbird was you had to speak at least two, if not five languages to be accepted. And I'm highly fascinated with other languages and I love other languages and meeting people who speak other languages. So being able to study business with global perspective, global cohort, multiple languages involved in cultures and um, perceptions and, and frameworks and, and worldviews was so enlightening and challenging and beautiful. It was right up my alley. You talked about your background as a firefighter. And uh, I think it started when you were very young. As a youth, you were a member of a group called the Fire Cadet Youth Program. What exactly was that? And, and what path did that lead you along? Sure. So that uh, was a program I started at about 14 years old. Um, it was a vocational program in my high school system, in our school district, where half of the day I would attend normal high school in the mornings and attend classes. And then the latter half of the day, I would go to the firehouse and I studied fire science, EMT, first responder, and um, leadership in the firefighter setting. So I would do drills. I would learn all about rescue services. I was able to get certified with an EMT at a young age, and I would ride out on the fire engine and go to real emergencies. We'd have real house burn, training house burns. 
Um, we, you know, used the jaws of life to cut open cars during drills and, and rescue dummies. Um, it was a full-fledged firefighter for a, for um, someone under 18. So the only thing I was not allowed to do was go into an actual burning building on the knob, when the knob just means that you hold the, the nozzle of the fire hose, uh, due to my age. But every pretty much everything else I was trained to do and able to do out on the field. Um, and that was a profound learning opportunity for me. It really made learning relevant. Uh, I was having a hard time in traditional education and in traditional high school just with boredom, to be honest with you. But that really engaged me and propelled me to become a 4.0 student and continue that desire to to learn and be relevant um, throughout the rest of my academic career. So you're a millennial CEO. Um, obviously, at the same time, you're, you're very accomplished. What advice would you give to aspiring female professionals? Well, there are a lot of us. I recently read a statistic something about more than half of the millennials who are now moving up into leadership roles, more than half of those with an education are female now. So it sounds like there are, you know, there's a giant force of us. And I would say, let's keep it going. Let's keep learning. Let's keep growing. And I always stress to get out of our comfort zones because that, that really propels us into growth. Learn to trust ourselves, embrace our role for this future generation, because it really is our responsibility to carry this next generation, not only for our industry, but for our planet. It's our responsibility. And so let's step into that and own that and receive all the mentorship we can, all the education we can, all the learning that we can and experience that we can to make us even better. But let's do it. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't slow down. It's our time, ladies. Let's do it. And you are definitely one that gets out of her comfort zone. You have a very adventuresome spirit, I think, as anyone can attest who listened to this. You're a backcountry surfboarder, a rock climber, a mountaineer, a surfer, and also a free diver. Um, I know we can't get into all of this, but just for our audience's education, can you explain what free diving is? It's something that's literally not for the faint of heart. Can you tell people what that's about? I started as a scuba diver. Most people know what a scuba diver is. So I was a master scuba diver trainer. I worked on sailboats and taught people to scuba. And that's with a tank. So you have a tank and you go underneath the water for, you know, 30, 40 minutes. And then you come back up and um, hang out on the boat and do it again. So what would happen is because I had spent so much time on the boat in the ocean and in the pool training, I ended up not having a tank a lot too. And so I would just go down, I'd set the mooring or the anchor or explore underneath the water while I'm lifeguarding snorkelers. And after a while, I found out I could stay underwater for a really long time. My lungs were getting conditioned. Um, and I also started realizing my I could last through one tank diving um, while other people were going burning through two or three tanks. So I thought, wow, my lungs are pretty impressive. This is cool. Um, and the more that I spent time underwater, the more I realized this, I actually like this better than a tank. So I started diving down without tanks where the divers were. And that was kind of my first introduction to free diving. So free diving is essentially going down underwater and staying for however long you can um, without a tank on your body. There's a lot more freedom in it. I don't have to worry about gear. And I get to condition my lungs and body doing it. It is a very dangerous sport. So there are a lot of um, safety issues that you need to be trained on when you free dive. Um, but it's so much fun. And you see fish life. You see more fish life because you don't have the bubbles and you can kind of hang out in one spot down there and just wait. Um, and 
huge fish will come by. I've seen, you know, I've swam with huge tiger sharks, schools of all kinds of sharks. And I just did a dive, well, two weeks ago with the giant, beautiful, giant manta rays of the Big Island, which was one of the most amazing dives of my life. Wow. As I said, folks, not for the faint of heart. Monica, listen, thank you very much for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation. Once again, thank you. Hey, thank you guys so much. We love what you're doing, Kuna. Keep up the great work and uh, let's keep moving our industry forward. Aloha. Thanks for listening to the Kuna News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. This podcast is sponsored by Harlan Clark. Learn more at harlanclark.com.